So a few years ago, uh, sometime in 2017, pretty much out of nowhere, uh, I began to notice a lot of physical changes with myself. I started having brain fog, I started having stomach pains, started having migraines, anxiety, high blood pressure, all these things just started happening at once. Now, when something happens to you, probably most of you, your immediate reaction is, I'm going to go to the doctor, I'm going to find out what's going on. My immediate reaction was, I'm going to fix myself. And so, I tried to understand my symptoms, I tried to understand the root cause and try to figure out how I could help myself. And I did that for several months. And often I would do something like buy a supplement or something like that. And that would often help, but I was never back to the point that I was before. And so when that didn't work, I did begin to go to the doctor. I did begin to go seeing specialists. And I saw neurologists. I saw I was a gastroenterologist. I've, saw, I've seen cardiologists. I've done all kinds of tests, CT, uh, CT scans, MRIs, uh, endoscopy, colonoscopy, all kinds of things. They did eventually find something, but at the beginning, they didn't find anything. They couldn't find anything that was wrong. Well, one night, I'm sitting in my living room, and I was thinking about the last year and thinking about all my symptoms and why I was so sick and why the doctors can't find anything. I'm depressed, I'm down, I don't know what's going on. And I had realized that I pretty much had spent that entire year trying to fix myself without ever even really acknowledging God about anything. I spent a lot of time thinking that myself and that doctors would, would heal me without really having God help me at all in the process. I had limited God. No matter what I professed orally, practically, and through my actions, I thought God was insufficient to help me, or at least that he didn't want to help me. And I was convicted, and I repented. We all do that at times. As Christians, we often dishonor God and we demonstrate a lack of faith and we lose out on God's wisdom and lose out on his power because we simply think too low of God. We don't trust him in our conflict at work. We don't trust him to help us with our marriages, with our families, with our relationships. And sadly, and subconsciously, we probably think that God doesn't want to help us. And so we limit God not necessarily in his power, but in his willingness. Our culture limits God in different ways. One of the main reasons people don't come to God is because they limit God in the amount of joy and peace that he can bring, and so they seek joy and peace in other things. Politicians on both sides of the aisle not only limit God, but they actually use God to get votes or to further an agenda. 
And today I want us all to leave here. I want us to have such a high, great view of God that we're no longer placing limits on God. I want us to be able to trust God in any and every situation in our lives. In our text today, we're going to see that the biggest problem with the Athenian people was that they were limiting God to be no greater than themselves, really. They were believing that the creator is equal or even lower than his creation. In Acts, uh, we're constantly moving from city to city to city. But today, Paul has finally come to the city of Athens. What is Athens? Why is Athens important? Well, the Greeks uh, were famous for their philosophers. Anybody here know the Greek philosophers or at least heard of them in some way? We've got Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. I'm sure most of you guys have heard of them. Well, Athens was the center of philosophical discussion. Athens was where people came to grow, mature, and further their personal philosophy, but also that's where Greek philosophy developed and grew in a location and corporately. Athens was the place where people would go and like, for instance, you want to go study under somebody, you want to learn Greek philosophy, like you're like, I'm going to go to Athens and I'm going to study under this Greek philosopher. That was just the place to go. That was the center. That was where everything happened. And as we see, every single place Paul goes in Acts, to, he goes, he shares the gospel. What always happens? There's always resistance. People don't want to hear the gospel. But that's not the problem here in Athens. They actually want to hear the gospel. Why is that? Well, novelty. Look at verses 19 to 21. And they took him and they brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they're always craving these new ideas. They always have to have something new. They would constantly come up with an idea. They would explore that idea. They would exhaust that idea, and then it would get old, and then it's on to the next idea. New was appealing, and it's appealing to even us. But new isn't a good motivation for hearing the gospel. Why? Because if novelty is your God, then it's only a matter of time before discussing Jesus gets old and it's on to the next idea. Nevertheless, they're willing to listen, so Paul's willing to share the gospel. Paul understands that the Athenians' biggest problem is that they believe in gods of their imagination. All of their ideas about God are limiting and they bear too much semblance to humanity. The first way we see them limit God is by limiting God's presence. Let's look at verse 24. The God 
who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, this can get confusing because the Bible speaks of God's presence in two different ways. The first way is God's omnipresence. Have you guys heard of that? God's omnipresence? What does that mean? That just means that God is everywhere. He is everywhere at all times. And when we say that, we don't mean that God is like sort of broken up, like he's got a foot in Pennsylvania and he's got like a head in Jupiter. That's not what we mean. The omnipresence of God means that the entirety of God is in every place at all times. The entirety of God is in all places at all times. The second way the Bible talks about God is about his manifest presence. His manifest presence. Sure, some of you have probably heard of that. Maybe not everyone. That's not as big as the omnipresence in our churches, I think. But the manifest presence of God refers to God's presence in a specific location. It connotes his nearness. It doesn't denote nearness. It connotes nearness. Think of the burning bush. That's God's manifest presence. Moses knows he's there. If I say God is everywhere, I'm talking about God's omnipresence. If I say God is in this church, I'm talking about his manifest presence. Does that make sense? And we have to hang on to both of these ideas. God is everywhere at all times, but he often makes his presence more known, more manifest in specific locations. Now, because Paul told the Athenians that God doesn't live in a temple made by men, he's not denying that God did manifest his, uh, himself in places like the Jerusalem temple. He's not denying that. But the problem he sees is that he thinks that the Athenians probably don't believe in God's omnipresence. You see that? They believe, the Athenians believed in the manifest presence of God. They think that he was specifically located in their temple. They had a problem believing He's outside of that. You guys tracking that so far? And Paul tells them that that's, that's just simply absurd. He says, God's created literally everything in the universe, a universe that's so expansive, by the way, that's impossible for us to explore. And he's so great, and he's way too great to be confined to this little bitty building that you guys made. We do the opposite of the Athenians. We all believe in God's omnipresence. We believe, for instance, that God sees and he hears everything in Korea. We also know that he's also in some undiscovered galaxy, unseen by today's telescopes. But it's precisely because we believe that God is everywhere that we somehow think that maybe he's just too busy or too stretched out to come near and give full attention to our problems. Maybe not all of us struggle with that, but a lot of us do. We use his omnipresence to limit his ability to draw near to us. 
God's omnipresence, as mentioned earlier, is it means that the entirety of God is everywhere at all times. That means he's also fully here, completely here. Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And every day, whether we sense his manifest presence or not, he is with us. We have to get past this idea, and we have to move on to spiritual maturity uh, and get past the idea that if we don't feel God, God isn't near us. If we don't feel God, God isn't close to us. That might be what we feel sometimes, but God is absolutely near, and he's promised to not leave us. So let's stop limiting God's daily presence when we don't feel like him being there. Know that he is there, regardless of our feelings, and call on him for help. Next, Paul sees the Athenians limiting God's sufficiency. Look at verse 25. It says, nor, he's talking about God, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Typically, when we think about a servant, we, tip, we think about a servant being low. He's low on the social order because he has a master, because he works for somebody that makes more money than he does. We typically think that the servant is lower or uh, lower socially and, and in several other ways. And so, when we get this idea that we don't serve God, but that God serves us, we are resistant to the idea because we think it dishonors God. What we're doing is we are imposing the categories, the worldly categories of master and servant onto God and man. But that's not how the Bible thinks about it. We are not God's master. That is blasphemous. But it can also be troubling to some of us to think of ourselves as serving God. It can be troubling and it can be blasphemous to think about us serving God. Why is that? Because the serving God, that assumes that God has needs. It assumes that God is dependent on his creation. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He is dependent on no one. The relationship between a servant and the one being served, it takes on an entirely new context when we talk about God and man. We are the ones with needs. We are the ones that need food, water, shelter, clothing. We need someone to die for us. And because God loves us, he meets our needs, and the Bible refers to this as God serving us. God meeting our needs is referring to, that's what it means when it says God serves us. This does not dishonor God. Saying that God serves us does not dishonor God. What it does is it demonstrates not only 
his self-sufficiency, but it also demonstrates his power and his infinite amount of resources in being able to meet our needs. It demonstrates that God is greater than us because we're the ones that need, have needs and we're dependent on God, and that means God needs nothing. So it actually demonstrates that God is greater than us by the fact that he serves us. The Bible turns upside down the relationship between servants and the one being served. In Mark 10 and other places, uh, you guys remember the story where James and John, they just, they come up to Jesus and they're like, you know, Jesus, whenever you get into eternity and you're like doing your thing and you're sitting on the throne, why don't you let us sit right next to you? What are they saying? They're saying that they want to be at the top of the ladder. They want to be right there with Jesus. They want to be the most important people in eternity after Jesus. What's the idea between that, uh, with, with what, they, what they're saying? Where do they get that idea? Or what's at least assumed in their thinking? What's assumed is sitting on a throne and having people meet your needs equals greatness. Sitting on a throne and commanding people to go get you things equals greatness in their eyes. Jesus said, how do you respond? He says, that's how the kingdoms of the world work, but we're not going to do it like that. If you want to be the greatest of all, be everyone's servant. Humility and the willingness to serve is what actually makes people great in God's eyes. And Jesus did the greatest act of service for us by dying for us on the cross. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is truly great in God's eyes is to set aside your personal wants, your personal desires and needs, and put others' personal wants and their others' desires and others' needs above your own. The greatest people in the kingdom of God are the ones who imitate God by serving others. So whenever we do anything for the kingdom of God, Let's never assume that our service means that God needs us because he doesn't. God can raise up rocks to do his will. Instead, the way we think about it is that we should consider it a privilege to get to serve uh, and work in the kingdom and we should give glory to God in the ways that we see him meet our physical needs day after day after day. Stuff that we just overlook. We all have clothing, we all have food, we all have shelter. Probably not many of us have thanked him for that today. It's just God is constantly meeting our needs daily, serving us daily. Don't limit God's self-sufficiency. The last thing they were doing is they were limiting God with images. Look at verses 26 to 29. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not from each one of us, for in him we, loo- we live and move and have our being, as even some of our, your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And here comes the verses about image, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. As Paul was walking into Athens, imagine walking into a Greek city and you just see a statue here of some god that somebody thought about from his own mind. And he's walking by and he's seeing all these statues, he's seeing all these idols, and it just breaks his heart. Look at verse 16. It says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, Paul's to the point where he is addressing these idols they believe in, and he's telling them that they believe in imaginary things. They believe their images are simply from a man's imagination. He's saying that any image that a man or a woman imagine, any drawing, any sculpture, anything you see, that isn't God. That isn't Jesus. These images that Paul was seeing with these statues and stuff, he understood that they limit our understanding of God. Images limit our understanding with God. This is why God, in the Old Testament, he forbid the Israelites from using images. He he forbid them from creating heavenly things. Why? Because an image of God is always wrong. An image of God obscures his glory and it dishonors him. Listen to the way that John Calvin put it. He said, A true image of God, wrote Calvin, is not to be found in all the world. And hence, his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious, because by his corruption, his majesty is adulterated, and he is figured to be other than what he is. Any image of God we see, any drawing you see, anything you see on the internet, any picture of Jesus you see, that is from someone's imagination. That is not what Jesus looks like. These are not what God looks like. Our imaginations are wild, they are unfocused, and they are incapable of reaching reality, heavenly reality on our own. And because of that, the only way we can understand God rightfully is if he reveals himself to us, not through our imagination. Which is why Paul, he he understood this, He understood that the Athenians would never know God from their images, from these statues that they had, and their imaginations of God. 
You can't just think and then come to an understanding of what God is like and what he desires. And so, he says in verse 23, he says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's saying that their images, they don't know God from their images. They don't know God from their wild imaginations that they have. And he said, the only way you're going to know is if I proclaim him to you right now. The only way you're going to know God is if I proclaim him to you right now. And we will always limit God when we seek to wildly observe him or understand him with our imaginations. And because we will never, apart from divine revelation, understand God, another application, well, the application is that our only hope of knowing God comes through divine revelation. Where is that? Where has God revealed himself to us? The Word. The Word of God is not a product of man's imagination. It is a divine gift, and it is entirely and completely accurate in God's, in the, in, in God, in the revelation of God. Do not limit God with images, with drawings. Don't limit him with your imagination. Know God through his revelation. As always, Paul, what happens after he shares the gospel He always calls them to repent. That's what we see here in verse 30. This is the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And same thing as in every city, there's always mixed results. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them who were Dionysius, uh, the Arapagitian, and a woman named uh, Demarius and others with them. So, as with every city we go to, Paul shares the gospel, uh, calls them to repent, mixed results, same thing that happens week after week. Our culture limits God today. Like the Athenians, our culture creates gods to suit their preferences and their personalities. Rather than look at the inerrant word of God, our culture creates a God uh, from their own imagination. They create gods from their own imagination. You'll find this, oh, and by the way, this God that they create always, always, always accepts them and tolerates any and everything they do. And you can find this everywhere. I was watching a Christian on YouTube recently, and He's sharing the gospel with uh, some homosexuals and some transgender people. And he told them, rightfully, that God loves them. But he also told them, honestly, that their way of life conflicts and goes against God's design and purpose for men and women. And this group, because he said that, they labeled him and the biblical truth that he said as hate speech. One of the people uh, came up and said, he said, my God is a God of love, and he made me this way, and he doesn't judge me for it, and he accepts it. 
What's that person just done? They have ignored the God of Scripture and they have replaced him with a God of their imagination. This is idolatry. How are you limiting God? How are you placing God in a box? What things do you imagine about God that may not actually be reality? One way we all limit God is in the way that he helps us. If we judged our prayer life, we'd probably find that we don't believe that God can or will help us often. What's one reason that we think that way? Why do we think God won't help us often? It's probably because at some point we felt left down, let down by God. We felt like God has let us down before. And the reason we feel that way is because we have prayed for something and we felt that God didn't come through for us on that prayer. You guys ever experienced this? You pray for something you want uh, and you just feel like God didn't come through. The problem is, isn't that God didn't help. The problem is with our expectations. We believe that God has to help us on our terms. He has to help us in our time and in, a, in the way that we expect him to. I, I've been there so many times. Uh, there's been times I've wanted to overcome sin in my life. There's been times I've been wanting to see fruit in ministry, and I think I've been faithful, and I've been praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying all the time, and I just feel God isn't giving the fruit that I desire or the, the victory that I desire. And when we do that, and we feel God didn't come through the way that we expected him to, we often chalk up our feelings of unanswered prayers to God just doesn't want to help. Maybe some will go so far as to say God can't help. I doubt that, but at least God doesn't want to help is what some of us think. And so what do we do? We start going through life. We deal with our daily hardships. We deal with our daily struggles without God. We do it on our own, which is evidenced by our prayer life or lack of prayer life. We try to fix our relationships, we try to fix our families, we try to fix our marriages on our own. We try to overcome sin by ourselves. We go to work, work, sorry, by ourselves. And that's because we believe that God is limited. But how would our lives change, change if we changed our expectations? How would our lives change if we changed our expectations? We want things immediately, and so we set that expectation on God. But what if we began to realize that God doesn't work on our timeline? When we pray before we go through the day, we are confessing that we are the ones who are limited, we are the ones who are insufficient, and we are saying that God has everything we need. In prayer, we confess that God is unlimited in power and willingness, in his willingness. 
And we are saying to God that we want to step away from the control of our lives. We want to step away from being in control of our lives, and we want to hand it over to you. What would happen if we stopped limiting God in his desire, his eagerness, and his ability to help us? What would our lives, our marriages, our relationships look like in six months or a year from now if we began to seek God daily for those things? Without an immediate expectation, just say, I'm going to just pray, I'm going to give this up to you on a daily basis, what would your life look like in six months? Usually God doesn't give these victories immediately. He doesn't make these changes immediately. They're gradual. They're slow. God wants to teach us patience. And if we persevere in seeking him, persevere in seeking the God who serves us, we will see change over time. If you're here today and you're not sure about whether you should believe in Jesus or not, I just want to talk to you for a second. I want you to think about what exactly is holding you back from believing in God. Are you not sure if Jesus is who he says he is? Does the idea of coming to God, is the idea of being a Christian, does that seem joyless and boring to you? I want you to reflect on your life for a minute. I want you to reflect on all the things you've done, just, just the, your pattern of life from birth until now. How would you, if you were to stand before God, thinking about everything you've done, how do you think God would react? Do you think God would be okay with the lifestyle that's been lived apart from him? Maybe you're saying right now that God, yeah, you've done some bad things, but generally you think you're a good person and God's going to overlook those things. I want to tell you right now that that is a God of your imagination. That is not the God of Scripture. God is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He is a God of justice. He demands absolute perfection. If you've committed one sin in your life, that's enough. You will not survive the judgment. Get it out of your head that you will be okay, because you won't. And when you don't survive the judgment, the punishment for that is eternal conscious torment. And no, that's not because God is a masochist. It's because he is a God of justice. Just as any good judge is going to punish you for something wrong that you've done, there's going to be consequences. God is the perfect judge, the holy judge. And even things like a sin is eternally sinful and grievous to him. But the heart 
of the gospel message. And the point with all that is that if you try to stand before God on your own, you will not survive. You've sinned way more than one time, but even if it was once, you will be judged. But the heart of the gospel message is that you don't have to stand before God on your own. At the heart of the Christian message is what we call union with Christ. You believe in Jesus, Jesus takes your place. God sees your righteousness before the throne. When he sees you, you've done nothing wrong. You have the status of perfection. You have the status of Jesus' perfectness, of his righteousness, of his holiness. Even though you're not. And the sins that you committed will be punished. God doesn't sweep his justice aside. The sins that you committed, Jesus also takes that. You get his righteousness, he takes your punishment on the cross. So God is still a God of justice, and he can be merciful to you. And the way that you partake of that gift is if you repent and believe the gospel. Please do that today. As mentioned earlier, um, I began to realize that I was dealing with all of my symptoms on my own when I was sick, and I mentioned that I, I rarely acknowledged God and all that. I was limiting him, thinking that he wouldn't help me or couldn't help me. But right there that night, as I mentioned, I went and I prayed to God. I repented to God. I said, I'm sorry that I haven't been seeking you and trying to help myself. And immediately after that, I'm not going to say that I was healed, that I had uh, an immediate diagnosis, but what did happen immediately is my anxiety started to go away. He started helping me through it emotionally. But then soon enough, there was a diagnosis. I got diagnosed with IBS and some other stomach issues, and that's why I started realizing I can't have certain foods anymore. And so, yes, God helped me. And one of the biggest things, he helped me spiritually and emotionally, but eventually he did uh, give the doctors wisdom in helping me understand it was with food. And going through that was so much greater, and still going through it today, is so much greater going through it with God than by myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are unlimited. Thank you that you are perfect, that you are holy, that you are powerful, you're omnipotent, you're omniscient, you're omnipresent. Father, pray that we don't limit you in any way. You are our friend, and, you, and we are your adopted children, and you are here to help us every single day of our lives. And I pray that we would take away our expectations of the way that you will help us, and we start trusting you on your own terms and believing that you are good and that you want to help us daily. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.